this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey guys, this is John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. If you haven't got your score yet, I'd encourage you to take 13 minutes and complete the questionnaire you'll find at valuebuilder.com. It'll give you your score on the eight key drivers of company value. You're going to learn some different things about what drives the value of your business. You'll be able to see how you performed on these eight unique factors. Go to valuebuilder.com. So my next guest, Lara Morgan, sold Pacific Direct for 20 million pounds. A couple of things to watch out for as you listen to this interview. Listen for her definition of success and how quantitative that was in her own mind. Also, she's going to talk about this concept of damaged goods and how a failed attempt to sell her business took her out of the market for a couple of years. She'll talk about how she got over what she refers to or we refer to as survivor guilt um, and how she kind of got over that. There's an interesting section where she talks about the interest rate that she was able to get for the portion of the proceeds of the sale that she left in the company. And she defines something called drag and tag in a private equity sale. So lots to learn from Laura. I mean, her accomplishments are hard to uh, uh, to kind of list off in a very short intro. She's uh, the portfolio investor of a number of different companies now since selling uh, Kit Bricks, Gate 8, Dry Robe, or some of her new products. Uh, she was on BBC's The Apprentice. So you saw Donald Trump's The Apprentice. She was on the BBC version. Uh, she was a finalist at the Entrepreneur of the Year Award. Um, she's the author of More Balls Than Most, and she's an incredible athlete. She came in 10th in her age group at the Triathlon World Championships in 2011. Uh, a really accomplished lady and some really interesting insights in this interview with Laura Morgan. Enjoy. Laura Morgan, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you. So tell me a little bit about this company, Pacific Direct. What were you guys doing? Um, initially, in effect, like all the young sort of startup entrepreneurs, and I was 23, I was doing everything. But the primary um, purpose of the business in the early days is I was selling what you would refer to as hotel accessory items. So everything, I mean, the business was founded on selling a sewing kit to one of the leading hotels in London. And it then evolved into selling what people would know as the luxury toiletries and accessories that premium hotels give away um, and offer in the bedrooms to enhance people's service and stay. So everything from laundry bags to slippers and shampoos and shower gels. And how big did you get this company before selling it? So we got to 18 and a half million pounds, let's say in those days. I think actually at one stage, we were very nearly 40 million in turnover US. Um, and we were making 3.3 million EBITDA sterling. So I guess again between six and a half and yeah, just between six and six and a half million dollars a year. That's a lot of money for those little shampoo bottles. Yeah, it's, it, it always when I look back at the ridiculousness of the pounds and the pennies and very much the cents, we sold a lot of mini things at very low prices to make that product um, profit. So how was the business model? Because when I go to a fancy hotel, there'll be like a Veda, uh, you know, moisturizer I can put on my yeah. face or like you know. Face scrub from whatever. 
Did you buy the stuff from the brand and then resell it to the hotel? Did the brand give you the stuff and then you sold it to the hotel? What was the business model? So if it was only so simple, the answer is, is we brand licensed. And in fact, Aveda was a brand we licensed, but we licensed brands in a uh, licensing agreement on a rolling basis where we paid a fee to them to use their packaging uh, style and their brand, but we manufactured everything. So I had factories in China, a uh, factory in the Czech Republic, and I even had a emerging joint venture in Egypt when I sold the business. So it was complex and we were delivering manufactured product that we would match formulate for those brands using their quality of ingredients. If you like their Victoria sponge um, recipe with their special fragrances bought from their supply chain, um, making it and filling it into miniatures and then delivering it to just 110 countries around the world. How long did it take you to get from the sewing kit to a company turning over 18 million pounds in revenue? How many yeah. years? Yeah, 17 years. I mean, it, it, it makes me laugh when I look at um, the Dragon's Den and the apprenticeship type of programs and Shark Tank in your country. And, um, you know, 17 years seem to go very quickly, but I now look back and I've got new companies and 17 years is starting to look quite normal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, so, something about the 10 years is, is yep. to me, it's to get something from startup to to being sellable, it seems like it's always got to be at least 10. Uh, but, and I uh, think that's much more realistic. I mean, truthfully, uh, John, if I was not such an ill-educated idiot and a buffoon that started at 23 without a business degree or any uh, formal training, I hadn't been to university, it actually ironically took me nine years to write a business plan, which is ridiculously laughable given that I got to four and a half million sterling turnover without a plan in nine years. And then with an eight more year period, I took 660,000 odd pounds profit to 3.3 million EBITDA. So it rather underlines the value of a plan. Interesting. So do you think you, if in hindsight, do you think you would have accelerated faster had you had a plan from the beginning? Yes. But how would you have known what the model was going to be? Wouldn't you have been sort of flying blind and with a bunch of assumptions stacked on each other, basically a house of cards? No, I don't think so. I think. Truthfully, I don't think you could say that the lessons weren't worth learning, but I think some of the lessons that I experimented with, I was so naive and so stupid and so scattergun that the word focus wasn't even in my dictionary and I didn't even know what the word strategy was. And when someone accused me of being an entrepreneur, I didn't know they were being insulting or not. So I was making too many mistakes experimenting as opposed to having a clearly focused strategy and a direction and a purposeful intent. And that sounds very businessy speak, but it's not meant to because since I've learned it, it's changed my life. So what was it that made you want to sell? You had this growing business with a fat EBITDA margin. What was the trigger? So I think part of it is there's almost an English tradition that we haven't appeared to have been successful or made it until we sold. And I think that on reflection now, I feel a bit foolish, but very honestly, all of my assets were in the business for 17 years. I had three small children and I fully intended to sell some of the company and stay as a brand licensing director, but with not quite the sale, same demand, a huge demand on travel. In the last year prior to going to market, I traveled 220 nights away from a small family. Yeah. So I was waking up in hotel rooms, not 
not wondering where the loo was or the toilet, but actually wondering which country I was in. I want to go back um, before we get into the actual sale itself. You mentioned this this kind of notion that you're really not successful until you've sold a company. I want to go back to you growing up. Um, <laughs> did you always want to, I mean, were you always ambitious? Uh, did you always have a dream of having millions of pounds in your bank account? I mean, what, like, what was your aspiration like as a child, as a teenager? So really, I think that's a really great question because I think the upbringing that we have really shapes us. In my case, I had a, a dad who set up his own company in Hong Kong and steadily went bankrupt going through considerable amounts of family money um, over a 13, 11-year period whilst my brother and I were sent to quite expensive boarding schools, but with veritably little pocket money and surrounded by wealth. So I was seeing people, if you like, my compatriots, children of my age, get given everything. And I, I lived on a budget, which was a, you know, a tiny, thin budget, traveled in economy. And whilst other people would fly from Edinburgh to London, I would get the bus, which was, you know, cheap as cheap and 12 hours of pain. And I think my dad steadily going bankrupt and us appreciating what it was like not to have money and seeing what money could do or could give you in experience or travel. So even in my A-level, you know, my uh, final qualification years, everybody in my history of art uh, set went to Italy. I, I didn't go to Italy because I didn't dare ask my parents for the money. And I remember thinking I didn't want to have children that I couldn't afford to send to Italy. And how is that shaping the way you mother the three kids you have today? Massively, because I'm a horrible old-fashioned mother and they have the worst and crappiest mobile phones in industry. Um, my daughter just went on a trip with YPO.org, which is an organization I'm in, and I, I think it's terrific, but she went on a trip, which she could, we could never have afforded in my day, on a university trip, ironically, <laughs> in Italy. And her compatriots were horrified that I have made her do uh, a job serving in a restaurant. My kids are not spoiled. They have to work and learn the value of money. They you know, have to respect the fact that they make their beds, even though they live in the most, I mean, a house that I still drive up to. And it makes me almost weep every time I drive in my gate because I can't believe I live there. So I think it very much shapes a fear I have since I have been very fortunate to make wealth that I don't want to bring up my children with a sort of silver spoon in their mouth because actually I think my brother and I were pretty hungry from the outset. So let's go into the actual sale itself. So you had uh, this growing company, you, you were traveling like crazy. Uh, did you go to market and, and put the business up for sale? How did you actually kind of make the first step to saying, hey, I'd be open to, uh, to selling this business? Well, interesting, and I think it might be relevant to some of your listeners. Between literally 19, so I started the business in 1991. From 1996, people started, if you like, um, approaching me and showing an interest. And initially, I would have meetings with even big companies like Bunzel, who are a worldwide company who, in effect, wanted to buy my business. And then I started realizing that that was just a distraction because I had set some goals around making a certain figure, not for any other reason than that was my 
bigger for success or for, if you like, a better word for security for my family. And so I stopped then having those distracting meetings. But actually, in on September the 11th, 2001, I was in a hotel room in LA with a successful business that was growing like, you know, topsy. And I was really tired. And I was thinking, do you know what? This is hard. And I'm not sure if I can take it bigger global. And I was becoming overwhelmed. And I was writing my exit plan when September the 11th happened. So I then had to literally gear back and forgive the long answer. But what happened is in 2004, I actively went to market because I had kept Pacific afloat. I'd put my house up to back the business and to give my personal guarantee over my home to keep the finance coming because obviously hotel occupancy plummeted. But I just felt that I was being irresponsible, risking all my wealth in the business forever. So I wanted to exit and realize some of that wealth. But frankly, I thought because I was a good salesperson, it would be less hassle selling. <laughs> um, what happened is I failed to sell in 2004 because of a completely disconnected reason that I could not have controlled. And I then had to sort of buckle down. And the experience of failing to sell was a priceless experience because it taught me that I was frankly pretty deluded about my own leadership ability. Um, badly leading and badly managing a team where I was probably behaving more like a benevolent dictator, not a good leader. I want to come back to the 2004 fail, but I just want to pick up on one thing that you said, which was you had a number in your mind that equated to success. What was the number? It was 10 million pounds. That to you meant what? I had everything for the rest of my life and I would never look back and have anything other than security for my children's education and a, a you know, a, a basic, not a basic lifestyle because actually I'm not a very um, materialistic person, but I just knew that that number would set us up for life. Now that you have that, how do you feel about that goal? Was it the right goal at the time or would you tell yourself a younger version of yourself that that wasn't the right goal? Um, Based on the experience I now have, um, it's very easy in hindsight to say maybe I should have hung on and sold differently. But I promise you that, and I don't, I don't know whether it's because one of my drivers was that I had an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, and a four-year-old, was that I really wanted to value the time I could spend with my kids in a less distracted way. I don't regret at all selling Pacific Direct. Nevertheless, I now reflect that once you get a business to the 10-year stage and then you get a grip of yourself and your own leadership ability and you start to realize there are some things you're just not very good at and you should employ the Jim Collins, you know, A-grade players, good to great. Um, once you have the guts to start employing great people around you, then on reflection, of course, I'd like to think that Pacific Direct would be a $50 million company or a actually $100 million company today, and that I could perhaps have been at the helm, but I wouldn't have had that um, belief, I think, had I not exited this first one. So it's a kind of a dichotomy of, uh, you know, confusion still. I think that's, that's pretty normal. Take us to the 2004 failed attempt to sell. Walk us through that. Yeah. Uh, how did that happen? So we, um, I had been courted by a boutique that sells businesses and, you know, clearly they're looking at my numbers and my accounts and they're bright and they're approaching me and, you know, 
And in the end, ultimately, I've been through a pretty rough three years um, since September the 11th. And what was the business doing at the time in 2004? Roughly? I guess I'm thinking 13, 13, no, can't have been as much as that. Maybe, oh no, 11 million in sales, something like that, pound sterling. And probably, I mean, making like, you know, 1.4 million with probably a forecast of 1.7 million in profit. So half the amount before I exited, I guess, somewhere around there. And the only reason actually, the, and this is an interesting lesson. So I got the heads of terms for an agreement. And the night that happened, there was a disaster in London where the police shot a young man called de Menezes on the tube. And it was quite famous because it was like a, a, an unnecessary shooting. Okay. They thought he was going to, you know, do something terrorist like, and he got shot. And so the pension fund that had backed a deal that was my deal on the table with heads of terms with everything agreed at 11.2 million pounds went away in a vapor overnight because the funds that was going to give the money immediately withdrew their funding because they thought that being in the hotel business was no longer a good idea. And that always strikes me as an extraordinary thing to learn that the deal is never done until it's done and a heads of terms is nothing because you've still got to go through the due diligence and through that time period in the market where you're still open to completely disconnected activities that completely sabotage your sale. I mean, how could I have ever believed that could happen? Such an amazing example and underscores for our listeners uh, something we talk a lot, a lot about. Heads of terms, of course, being in the North America, we talk about a letter of intent or you know, the basic terms are agreed to. And, and you're right, so many entrepreneurs get that. They see the number and they start buying the vacation home, the ski chalet, whatever. And they tell their spouse and they, they go, you know, it, for them, the money's in the bank. And, and as you know and point out, there's so many things that can happen. In this case, something totally out of your control. Yeah, correct. So you licked your wounds. And did you, were you tempted to go directly back out to market having had this deal lost? Or did you go I had a bit of knowledge and, and the knowledge is, is that, you know, if you've actively gone to market, in other words, you have gone to market to market your business actively. At that point, my understanding rightly or wrongly is if you then do not close a sale, you are inverted commas in the market, slightly damaged goods, whether it's your fault or not. So I was led to believe that I needed to leave it for at least two to three years before actively going to market again. And that is exactly what I did. And so walk us through the, the time and the story that you actually did sell the, the business. Okay, so um, <laughs> after failing to sell, inverted commas, no fault of my own, I went on a three-week holiday for the first time in Pacific's history, and I never even checked the sales results. I never dialed in the office. I left a meeting with my management team saying, you know, it hasn't happened. It's not going to happen. I'm going to Sri Lanka. I will be coming back in 21 days, but you will not be hearing from me. The only person that, that knew where I was was my PA. And the only reason anybody would have called me is if a factory had burnt down. So that was the sort of recovery phase. And then really what I did is I came back and I went to the people who had marketed my business and, and had got that letter of intent. And I said, right, let's be really honest. Had we gone through due diligence, where would I have scored low? So in other words, I wanted immediately to learn the lessons of where I had devalued my business. I then went on a course 
called Strategy is Destiny at Stanford because I thought I just needed greater education about what I was doing with my business, whether I believed my plan as much as I needed to. If you like, I rekindled a very clear focus and started making very black and white decisions about some of the direction that we were going in, in terms of strategy. What we was really, your focus, when you talk about having a, a rekindled focus, was, yeah. was the focus to drive the value towards an exit? Um, partly. So I, I actually have a mantra, which is the two years before I went to market, all I did was make decisions about maximizing value for exit. And I had this brilliant, simple calculation that for every pound I spent, if I couldn't fundamentally see seven or eight pounds, i.e. the multiple that I expected in return within that time window, I would not make the decision to spend the money. But much more importantly, I really sharpened my pencil in terms of staying focused on stuff that was going to give us growth and security and continued revenue, because you can't sell at the top of the growth curve. You're not going to get you know, a valuable price. And apart from anything else, let's not forget, I genuinely intended to be involved in the business ongoing because I actually couldn't work out in my head anything better that I would like to do. So you go to Stanford, you get this rekindled yeah. passion. Take us yeah. to the actual sale uh, that, that, you, uh, that you closed. Okay, so yet again, um, that's at the point where you, I mean, two years out, I got a, an, a template of a due diligence checklist from a major accounting firm. And that is one of the priceless things that I can advise your listeners to do. Because apart from having heart failure, when you see how long it is, actually what you do is you start getting your data room and your set of um, paperwork in order so that the last thing you need to do is be distracted about petty stuff when you go to market. What I started to plan is a real focus around delivering on the results and delivering on consistency and growth, having an upside, actually having a fallback buffer that I sort of clipped up my sleeve in case market changed, but I was in market and selling so I could drive through the deal. And I literally had meetings about maximizing value um, and started gathering, if you like, the advisory team from two years out. I started making if you like, more concerted investment or not investment decisions, as I have said, in terms of what return I would get. And I even, if you like, started stalking really primary big deals that I knew if I got would maximize the value of the business. So in one case, I worked, if you like, trebly hard on winning a piece of business with a major global hotel chain with a five-year contract, which I was intending to sign in the months, if you like, as I was starting to get my information memorandum written so that I knew I had massive upside for the buyer. That is strategic indeed. How, what, what have you told your employees? I mean, who knew the first time you went to market in 2004, like what level of employee knew you were going to market? And then how did you kind of keep them in or out of the loop uh, in the years after? So I that's also a very solid question for learning. So I learned a lot about this. First of all, I'm rubbish at paperwork like many sales hunters and entrepreneurs. So I took the girl from my accounting uh, team and I, who is immaculate in every way. And I said, Caroline, I need you to be an insider. I need you to get my data room sorted. I need you to do this due diligence checklist. And in return, I will pay you a bonus. And she got a significant bonus for immaculately delivering a data room 
But bear in mind, I had nine countries of operation and two factories, so it was no small ask. And Laura, what, what, how, you know, as a percentage of her annual compensation, what would that bonus have amounted to? 100%. So she got basically an entire year's salary for, uh, for doing the data. Okay. That's helpful. And then, I mean, I can tell you it was 50,000 um, pounds. I had an FD, a part-time FD in my business, which FD, is- FD, by the way, for North Americans yeah. would be a, a, a head of uh, finance, like a CFO. Exactly. So my CFO was actually part-time. He had only been coming in like one day a week. But actually, Nigel was ex-private equity anyway. So I then, obviously, he became the person that was consulting on the financial side of the business. And for about four years, I had been courting the advisor that I wanted to use um, to sell the business because I did feel having a middleman was a good idea. And so he was clearly in on it. And then factually, my senior management team, in other words, my global sales director, my head of China, my head of my Czech factory, and my operations director were all in on it. Because ultimately, at the beauty parade, um, which is when you are presenting your business to various um, trade buyers or equity partners, those people have to be passionately behind the strategy and presenting with you because you're not the one-man band anymore. You have to be a management team. If you don't have a truly capable management team who can present, you will not sell at a decent price. I fundamentally believe that. How were you compensating those divisional line people, the head of China and so forth, to, uh, to align your uh, performance with theirs or your, your compensations with theirs? So good question. Again, I made a massive mistake early on, John, in, again, being naive and, and lacking in knowledge about management shareholding and equity pots and all sorts of things. And every time I sort of got towards exiting, it was too late to bother giving management or selling sweat equity to management or setting up a shareholder structure. So I went to market whilst owning 99% of Pacific. But whenever I was recruiting anybody, senior management, junior management, if anybody asked me what I planned to do with Pacific Direct, I always and without fail consistently said, if I'm going to sell, I will sell for a fair price and I will share the value of that sale. Um, but I was getting to the point with the bigger business where I was employing senior people who wanted part of the equity pot. And what I had done running up to the exit between 2004 and 2008 is I had aligned the senior management team to have shares in the business when I exited so that they had an upside for ongoing delivery and in effect they were tied into the business but they also had a cash compensation payout as a percentage of the deal. And that percentage was related to how long they'd been in the business, the role they played, the impact on growth. Um, frankly, in some cases, my emotional connection in terms of what they brought to the business over perhaps in some cases, 17 years. Um, actually, 15 years was the maximum. I, I was the longest employee and at 17 and my first employee was 15 years. And there were different approaches for different people because I knew that those different people may or may not stay. Um, so I needed to make sure that they were looked after. So I think it would be helpful for people listening to get a sort of compare in their own minds, what proportion of somebody's sort of salary would, would they garner, uh, would a senior person garner if, if the, if the um, 
sale goes through. So can you take one of your senior people that we don't need the names, but say one of your, like, what would they earn in a, in a decent year in terms of total comp? And then what would they earn, uh, in, in the event of a success, what do they earn when you sold the business in terms of comp? So let's say someone's on a comp of 80,000 pounds sterling plus commission, let's say 120,000 comp. I would probably, in memory, I would suggest that most of them got between 80 and 100% of their total comp at exit, plus in some cases, one or 2% of the equity pot of a business that was then sold at just over 20 million pounds sterling. So in effect, 2% of 20 million as an equity value, if they stayed on and were good lever, was quite a significant part of the business. And as a whole, the equity house and I agreed that putting 15% aside for management was the right way to go. Got it. And how what, do you feel? Do what you... I didn't understand at the time, by the way, is that they would dictate that about 6 or 7% were kept for new management, for want of a better description, the chairman and some other senior roles. And so actually the five main players probably shared in my, my group, probably in the end shared it about eight and a half percent after a fight. After a fight? As in after a disagreement, because I thought equity were being, I thought my private equity were being greedy about holding back management shares. For people I didn't know and who, for people who hadn't contributed, but for people that they felt they needed to bring in. Gotcha. Talk us a bit. Talk talk us through that the deal with the private equity group. So did, you had hired this banker, that yeah. uh, this sell side M and A professional or corporate finance pe uh, person. Correct. Um, did they shop the deal to lots of different private equity groups, or was it like take uh, us through that? I do think there is an awful lot to be said for probably knowing if you're in a business for ten or seventeen years. By then, you know your market, right? Or you ought to, or else you're missing a trick. So I think on the industry side, i.e. a trade side, I had named and knew well the leaders of all of the businesses that we wanted to communicate with to say that Pacific was exiting the market in my ownership. What I didn't know is the private equity side of the market, which is why I needed my banker. And he selectively went to the boutiques that he knew. And again, there's a lesson there, which is, of course, these people have relationship biased in the market where they have partnerships. So I think it was really good to have both trade and equity conversations. And where did they go? Did you get multiple letters of intent or, or heads of terms from? In I, I think I'm, I'm very sure that we got five proper letters of intent. Um, earlier on, we got more uh, shows of interest, but those were whittled down. And I think we ended up with two private equity and three trade offers. But the variety, if you like, the breadth of offer went from 14 and a half million to 27 and a half. Those, that was the range between the five offers. Of the valuations, yeah. Got it. And that was a real lesson, John, because we then, and obviously each of those offers is made up of certain terms of delivery and cash and bonus and, oh my God, so much complexity. So I then learned what true modeling was. And I think some of the best money I spent when we had multiple offers was over a weekend we paid some modeling experts to model out the different deals to actually show you what the values were of the very different offers because a 27 and a half million pound offer can look very small when it's modeled to show that actually you're ending up staying for the rest of your life to deliver the money so i'm so take us through the highlights of the uh, of, of the low end and the high end what 
the 27 million, I'm assuming, was mostly uh, based on performance incentives in the future? Correct. And, you know, Lara can stay bolted to the floor and will change very little and we'll just ride the wave, thanks very much, sod off. What proportion of the 27 were they offering up front in cash? Um, I'm thinking from memory, seven or eight. So here's seven million, Laura, and, 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 and here's 20 if you hit all these performance incentives in the future. Yeah, which you just can't even see. And of course, I was very, very lucky because a few months later, Lehman's happened and there was a disaster. So the hotel industry completely tanked. Yeah, your timing was pretty good, young lady. <laughs> timing was Let's be honest, I was very lucky. <laughs> so what about the $14 uh, million, uh, offer? What did that but look like? That was trade. But they, I mean, I still reflect actually on that offer and think that was a really... I probably didn't give that offer enough consideration because I felt insulted because I was a bit dear in the headlights by being offered nearly double. Mm. And then we did the modeling. And I remember thinking, actually, if I wanted to stay working and traveling really hard, that would have been an interesting partnership in trade. And when you say trade, you're referring to another company, a competitor or someone in your ecosystem, as opposed to a private equity company. Yeah, correct. And obviously that's a lesson that is very uncomfortable because that's a very different lack of open conversation, which makes it very difficult for the trade buyer to really see the value because you don't want to show them the value because you're showing them your power deck for want of a better description in terms of your points of difference, which are beating them in the market. But on the other hand, I guess if you're wanting to stay in come anything, then that trade conversation is one that perhaps on reflection I should have danced more with because it might have been a better upside, I don't know, in the long run. Equally, though, I had also, and I think it's important to state this, and I'm sure everybody states this, the one thing I knew going into exit is cash is king. And until people learn the lesson that cash truly is king, they haven't understood what they're worth. Well said. So you were looking at these, as you scrutinized the five offers, you were looking at, okay, what is the cash component of this offer and what is the at-risk component? That was one thing you were scrutinizing. What else were you evaluating as you looked at them? Um, So I also learned what a word, um, I learned the word uh, coupon on the uh, loan notes that I was leaving in the business. And so that could range from, in those days, laughably, 7% all the way up to 12 to describe that, for people who don't know what a coupon is, how would you describe so it? So if you leave value in the business, money in the business in the shape of a loan note or something like that, you will get interest on that money that you've left in, inverted commas, at risk. So therefore, you are helping the business run as normal and you should take an interest rate. I actually negotiated, a, I think it was 12%. So can you imagine that I've been tw- paid 12% until my final exit last year in a time where money has been worth nearly nothing? So that's one thing. Um, There was a small bonus for achieving an unbelievably, at the time, I thought, achievable goal. So there was a half a million pound bonus. We never got it because the world turned upside down in luxury hotel world. Um, And ultimately, I think from memory, well, I'm pretty sure this figure's right. I took 14.98 million pounds sterling off the table and I kept 19.8% of the business in shares which then I exited in the, in when the private equity exited, I was on a 
what is referred to as a dragon tag, so that when they exited, I had to exit with them. So walk us through that. So the ultimate buyer you chose was a was a private equity group. They valued the business at twenty million. Yes. Uh, you got fourteen cash and yeah. left the balance in the business. Yeah. You got a twelve percent coupon on the money that you left in the business. Yeah. And you basically said, "Okay, guys, I'll you know I'll exit when you exit in this dragon tag model." Yes, and and you know at that stage all the private equity deals were being done in a turn of about five years, which is their ideal length of deal if they can get a good return. But you and I know that that very quickly became six or seven years, and it's been tough. In what way has it been tough? Well, the hotel industry, particularly the luxury five-star industry, took such a hammering in 2008, 9, 10. Um, Scandals with AIG executives staying in expensive places for reward got completely lambasted in the global newspapers. Uh, so Pacific, you know, has done incredibly well uh, to maintain growth. And actually, I, to be fair to the private equity, who it wasn't an easy ride, but they did a good job and they exited very healthily last year. And I was removed from the board one year after exit for various reasons, which I'm told is fairly typical. Um, and, you know, I reflect that I've been extremely lucky in the whole process. Did you stay on as the CEO of Pacific Direct after the private equity company bought? I did for nine months while they found somebody that they thought would be good. And he arrived on the 1st of October. He will remain nameless. And on the 13th of October, I wrote to the board being extremely naive and stupid again, telling them that I thought he was an incompetent fool. <laughs> so that yeah. went down not very well, to say the least. Um, by the way, I was right. He left very soon after. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, I left with him because of a completely unrelated issue. And I just got to the point where actually, if I said left, they went right. And it was becoming miserable. So, so you lasted uh, around a year. Yeah, correct. After. And then you, you left the the job of being the CEO, but you were you were you held on to that that percentage of equity until they exited. Absolutely, and one of the smartest things, or the two smartest things I did was, in my exit deal, in the sales and purchase agreement, which I'm not sure what it's called in America, but we the contract of sale. Yeah, sure, purchase agreement. Yeah. Right. We had a an agreement that. It, whether I was in or not the business, I could have a representative on the board and I would always be furnished with the board papers as long as I was a shareholder. That was a huge asset after I left the board because emotionally I wanted to know what was going on. And had I not had that clause, I would have been blind. And so they begrudgingly had to share that detail with you. Yeah. And although, you know, you could say there's quite a lot of smokescreen in it and I suspect they weren't frankly, 100% accurate all the time as to what was really discussed, which I guess is the game they could afford to play. If I had somebody at the board meeting, clearly they were 100% accurate. The point is, is it just kept me in touch of my shares. And if you think, you know, you build a business all your life, I, I, you know, whoever's listening to this, if they're on the precipice, I don't care what anyone sells, says, I sold my baby and that is an, inter you know, that is an emotional connection. And it was hard to wean myself off it. So having the share knowledge and the understanding of how my business was still performing was interesting, important, and educational. I want to get to the kind of emotional uh, impact of selling because it, it 
such an important topic. <laughs> the, just be, just to finish off the mechanics of this final tranche of your equity, you sold the nineteen point eight percent. It seems that you you sold the first big chunk of your equity in two thousand eight for around six times adjusted EBITDA. If your EBITDA was around three point three million and you sold for twenty, Correct. I'm getting it's around six. Is that about yeah. right? Yeah. So. With the drag and tag deal, when the private equity company exited, what did they get in terms of a multiple of EBITDA? You're not going to like this, but I can't disclose that. Okay. Okay. And disclose, and I think is a real lesson. Last September, when they took me and we exited, I had to re-sign my non-competes, which blew me away. So when I first sold Pacific Direct, I was perfectly happy to sign a two-year non-compete because that seemed a very fair and reasonable thing to do. It never occurred to me that six years later, I would have to re-sign that non-compete for them to exit their shares. And what's the dynamic like when, when you know, five years after you've left the company, I mean, you're, you're years past running the company, yeah. and, and somebody from the private equity group kind of puts their tail between their legs and says, Laura, I, you know, I apologize to do this, but we need you to sign this, end, this uh, non-compete. I mean, was it... Was it, was it as I'm describing, were they sort of sheepish about it or what was the yes. relationship like? Yeah, it was really funny. And in fact, I thoroughly enjoyed it because it was about time I had the upper hand and something had told me all the way along. And there was, it was more complex, but I can't disclose it, that I would soon have a little bit of, let's call it comeuppance. My mother would refer to it as childish revenge. <laughs> um, but it was rather lovely when they called me. And then of course, my lawyer brilliantly pointed out that for the money that I was getting for my shares, I should shut up and sign the paperwork. <laughs> um, he made a fair and good, diligent appoint, and I have signed the paperwork. <laughs> talk, us about, talk to us about the emotions of selling. So on one hand, you'd, you'd reach your goal, this goal you'd had as, as a young mom to, to make sure you had uh, you security. Know, security for your kids and, and their schooling and so forth. Um, take us through your mind in those months after leaving uh, Pacific Direct. What was that like? So initially it's weird because you sold the business and you go back in the next day and you announce you've sold your baby to people that you have worked with for the best part of 15 years in some cases. And I felt very strongly that the worst thing I could do was to sort of make a noise and, and celebrate and run off into the sunset. So we didn't take an immediate holiday, but, um, <clears throat> and again, much to my, upset because I didn't really want my kids to realize quite how wealthy we had become. I didn't realize I had no control over the publicity piece and the private equity put a front page story in the Financial Times with my picture to announce their fantastic purchase. And immediately my kids were told by a member of staff at school, wasn't mummy very clever for 20 million quid or whatever, you know. So that blew that idea and it, it immediately made me realize that keeping something like that private was just not going to happen. Um, because it, you know, I wasn't in control of it. I frankly then did one of the greatest things that I've ever done in my life. And I got so much enjoyment out of it. I cannot understate it, which is I got all my team into a room and I said to them that I would be giving them all a sum of money that I felt they had earned out of my pot. And actually it was a point of negotiation with the private equity who were not at all happy about me doing it because they thought, the whole company would just disappear off shopping, shopping for weeks on end. Um, but I, I did it in a way that was 
I think, clever advice from a friend of mine who said, if you're going to give people a sum of money, tell them that it's the only thing you're asking them to keep confidential is the amount. And tell them as you do it that nobody gets the same amount. So if they share the amount, they might be embarrassed or they might be disappointed. So what I then did is everybody in the office just drew their you know, name out of a hat and each of them came into my office and I sat them down and I said, do you want me to tell you verbally or do you want me to tell you in writing? Because you'll get a letter. And they said, you know, they made their choice. People fell off their chairs. They burst into tears. I mean, I burst into tears because, I mean, you know, you can give people life changing amounts that pay off their mortgages or. And I did that for a whole half day. And ultimately, the figure was a very large figure that I gave away. But every person I gave it to, I felt had earned it. And my mistake beforehand about not giving them shares had meant that they had shown me total trust and I felt I needed to pay them back. What an interesting approach. Tell me, as you think about it now, mm. um, was it the right decision to, to do that? Or was it an impetuous sort of knee-jerk reaction? Because you know, I think I hear from a lot of owners when they sell, there's this sense of, uh, of guilt, right? It's like survivor's guilt. Like, I've got this big so check. And it is the best tonic to knowing that everybody got a fair deal out of the deal. And it is the way I have paid for the guilt of becoming very wealthy and wealthy beyond my wildest dreams. And I completely understand that guilt, but that was my solution. And I think it was a great solution. And when I reflect, I am proud as punch that I did it. So wonderful reactions, I'm sure, from, from many. Were, were there any that reacted uh, muted in a muted way? like? Jeez, Not really, because <laughs> I was expecting more. Yeah, I don't know. My, my, I, I, you know, I worked really hard on that part, and my husband and I deliberated it for a long time, and we really worked with huge detail on a spreadsheet to graphically work out what was the fair right number. Um, you know, and I mean, we had a scoring system with weighting. And I mean, we literally poured over this thing for time, you know, a lot of time. And I suspect there were one or two people that I, I, don't, I really don't know, but I have friends in my old company that go back now, you know, decades. We're still in touch. In some cases, I'm sad. I'm not as in touch with people as I'd like to be. But the fact is, life is busy and I miss them. There's nobody I don't miss from my old company. And I've never had any feedback or negativity around my behavior. So I guess I've been lucky. What was your husband's reaction to a giving away? Because as husband and wife, this wealth that you'd created was yeah. yours collectively. And here you are giving a big chunk of it away to people that he didn't frankly work with every day. How did he react well, to that? That's entirely true because he had been an operations director in the business. Okay. So he was totally on board. He was you know, a member of the senior management team, albeit we didn't work together very much because we felt that was better for everybody. And therefore, it was much easier, John. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting how the spouse in a business sale uh, works. I have one M&A banker that I know who will not go to market with a company until they have a conversation with the spouse to know that the spouse is aligned, the spouse wants to do yeah. this, the spouse, you know, because they've seen so many deals fall apart in the diligence phase because the spouse puts an end to it. So interesting. 
Yeah, no, and I think that's a real learning curve. I mean, the one thing that my wonderful and gracious husband has done throughout, you know, our journey, and without him, we wouldn't be where we are, is he has bravely supported my lunacy and trusted my competency, sometimes incompetence. Um, but he knows that I'm always trying to do the right thing and equally, you know, that that has borne solid results. I probably, you know, can have done most of it better, but I've learned and we've done well out of it. And we are frankly still gobsmacked every day of the week that we drive up to our ridiculous home and and we have this privileged life that we lead. And to be honest, and it's and I, you know, I know it's a ridiculous thing and I'm not looking for sympathy, but when you go from literally bootstrapping and, and many years of reinvesting every penny that we ever had, you then get wealth. And actually, John, that comes with some complexities and emotion that frankly is not my happiest time because I'm not good at managing money. I don't like people managing my money. I don't feel in control of my assets like I used to. And it's a very different thing. What advice would you have for someone who accumulated instant wealth as it relates to managing it? Um, I don't know how inappropriate this is, but there's an old fashioned saying that if you can fly it or float it, don't, don't buy it, rent it. And there are various others along those lines. The fact is, is that, you know, I took advice from my peers and for six months I did nothing because I just, you know, needed to breathe. We did take a family holiday. And then as soon as I was removed from the business, the family and I traveled for five and a half months. But even then, you know, we... We didn't stay luxury except once in Raffles Hotel in Singapore because I'd always wanted to stay there. And it's madness when you think about it, given the fact that I was wealthy beyond my dreams, but I just couldn't come to terms with spending that kind of money on myself in an expensive hotel. Um, so, you know, we, camp, um, we hired the equivalent of an RV in Australia and we did economy hotels. And, you know, we don't want our kids to grow up with a perception that money matters. You can get a lot better experiences by walking up to the top of the hill and having a picnic. So we really, we give them a pretty hard time from that point of view. Um, and so the answer to your question is, there's a huge emotional challenge around money and making wealth. And my advice would be to get, to take out the same references and the same gut feeling that you've applied to great employee decisions before you work with other people, but mostly not to be deer in the headlights and frightened of it, but to work, work with the intelligence you have and to learn as much as you can, because there are a lot of sharks out there who make very considerable margins, take a lot of your money for doing sod all and put it at risk in an uncontrolled way. And you can probably tell from my voice that I'm none too impressed with the investment community in general. Mm -hmm. but are you now with someone that you trust? Yeah, I am. And I'm, I'm much happier. But I have to say the problem with that is, do you put all your eggs in one basket? So Charlie and I have tried to diversify and we have a few flats in London and we have a magnificent home and we're trying to be sensible. But I, I, I'm not looking for sympathy, but I can't say that my happiest moments are working on my own managing my wealth because I feel I am obligated to look after it for my children and my family. And yet actually, and ironically, they're not getting most of it because I don't think that's going to make them better human beings.
Hmm. So, Will you be giving it away? Yeah, a lot of it. I actually, I mean, I have a goal in my head that in the new businesses that I have, if I can accumulate 10 million pounds, I would like to give 10 million pounds to what I then feel is the best course of support that I can offer. Tell us about the new businesses, uh, because I was about to say you must be, you know, like, what are you doing between jetting off to Singapore and Australia? But it sounds like you've got some other things in the fire. What's, what's going on now? Yeah, no, it's been, and, and again, that's a learning, which is, I probably spent the first two, three years after exiting Pacific wondering a bit, what the hell am I going to do next? Going through a phase of believing I could conquer anything and grow everything. And then I very quickly defaulted into, I have a great black book and I should use it. And I also have great relationships in manufacturing and in China, and I should use those. So today I'm, you know, the Lara Morgan group, if you like, is made up of product companies that I'm passionate about sports and well-being. So I have a, and I have an interest in triathlon. So I have some brilliant products called Dry Robe, which is a triathlon cloak and a changing robe. It's brilliant. Just launched that in America, but it's in UK and it's very, it's, it's really cool niche product. I have Kit Bricks, which is also launched in America, a triathlon bag. I have Active Bod, which is a sports toiletry range. So that's trying to sell you the idea that I have a sports category, <laughs> but it has happened that way. And then I have a, given the fact that I used to work in the hotel industry, I have invented an amazing uh, fragrance company called Centered.me, which is spelt with an S. So the play is to feel centered, but it's a sports, it's an aromatherapy portable mood balm, which is amazing for lifestyle support. And then I have Gate 8, a luggage company, because bear in mind my experience with travel, I am not very patient with the world travel market. I absolutely hate any airport. It doesn't matter how good it is. I want to be there for a short amount of time as possible. And Gate 8 is the only luggage company in the world that specializes in avoid baggage check-in. And it has, um, Gate 8 has a zip-off luggage, a laptop piece on each bits of its luggage, but you can still fit it in the, whole, um, in the overhead locker. And, and, it's, and it's brilliant and it's life-changing. So I invest in stuff that I believe saves time and time is the most valuable commodity that you can sell. So if I can improve lives through my group of inv investments, then I'm very happy. Fantastic. The consummate entrepreneur. Blair, wh where can people reach you or where would you like to send them to to, to learn more about you? So if, if they go to laramorgan.co.uk um, or there is a legacy business which has got loads of fantastic growth information called company shortcuts, company shortcuts, uh, com, and that gives you a whole raft of my experience and the templates that I use to grow Pacific Direct as well as, and most importantly, sales growth training, because frankly, I feel very, very privileged to have achieved what I've achieved, but at the heart of things, I'm a salesperson, and I feel very proud to be more than a half-decent salesperson, and I wish more people would take pride in being really good salespeople. So that's where they'll find me. Fantastic. Laura Morgan, thanks very much for joining us. You're really welcome. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for asking. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. 
John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. -L -L 